but you have a teacher, a person called a teacher, and that person has your child's brain for five days a week, seven hours a day, 12 years of their life, and you don't think that that person has to be the best? I have a problem with that. We got a new episode of Pod County here. B.B. Coker is in the house. If you are unfamiliar with B.B. Coker, uh, it's probably because she's usually behind the scenes. She is she is a person who has been an advisor and mentor and sounding board for any number of Delaware leaders, uh, including the former vice president and current presidential candidate Joe Biden, and a major advocate uh, in education policy in Delaware. So big, big, big figure from a fairly uh, unassuming person. You would not expect this woman to be the spitfire that she is, but she tells it like it is. She doesn't pull any punches. So sit back and enjoy this episode with B.B. Coker. B.B. Coker, welcome to the pod. This is the Pod County studio for the Pod County podcast. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. So I've done what research I, I can. Oh boy! You don't have a big digital footprint, um, <laughs> but I but I went out and I'm like I, I want to know about BB Coger, and uh, I, a couple adjectives came up. Um, I saw activist. Oh lord! That okay. came up. I also saw agitator. Yeah. Saw that one. Saw yeah. that one. Uh, in influential. That came up a lot too. Wow. Yeah. You have had a big role in shaping. The opinions of a lot of people in power. So interesting. Yeah. Wow. Do you want to tell me a little bit about your backstory? Where 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 does BB Coker come from? Well, actually, I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, and I grew up uh, in a period of time that segregation was prominent. It was the law, Jim Crow laws. I was always taught that we rise above stuff. So you got to know what you're rising above. So I was taught my history from cover to cover or as the people in the South say, kiva to kiva. I learned what our people have done for this country in its founding and its growth. And uh, I have long been one of those people that could never understand and still don't understand, and I must admit I agitate for that, why our history is not recorded in the texts, on the pages, in the chapters where it belongs. Black history is America's history, culturally, there are things that you could say, dance, music, and that kind of thing. That's one thing. But economically, industrially, educationally, and otherwise, our history is America's history, part of America's history, and it should be recorded as such. You know, when I think about growing up and learning about American history, you're, I think you're right, and I haven't really thought about it much in that context until you said that, but it, like black history really seems to start in school education like after the Civil War. Like, yeah. you know, oh, well, well, black people were here for a long time before that. Yes. Shaping the economy uh, yes. of this country, right? It would not have been possible to grow an industrial sector in the South without free labor. Or North. Or, or the North, right, because yeah. the, the textile mills that were, right. that were receiving those resources. But you don't hear about the, the human beings who no. were doing that. And even now, you know, in the, I mean, going to school in the 90s, early 2000s, 
you would think we'd be farther along in, in educating people properly about that. Uh, well, the one thing uh, that I'm very grateful for, it happened in August. That would be the 400th anniversary year of when enslaved or Africans came to this country and were enslaved. Mm -hmm. And it really was very near Hampton, Virginia, in Point Comfort versus Jamestown. But that's just logistic. That doesn't really matter. But the one thing that has been a gift to me, not personally this year, if you'll look at the New York Times, August. I have a copy of it in the studio. I, I got several. I, I, I went all over this place trying to find it. The 1619 Project has sparked all sorts of things. And it is the only actual recording in the history that I've known about where a major newspaper is saying that the wealth of this country and its economic growth rests on the shoulders uh, primarily of free black labor. I, that's tremendous to me. Yeah, and realistically, I, I don't know how you could argue any other way, right? Yeah. I, I mean, if you look at one of the major arguments in the fight against minimum wage, yeah. right? That, oh, well, we can't raise these wages because we won't be able to compete economically. Well, well what do you do when you have free labor, right? Oh. You're competing pretty strong economically. So, yeah, it, it's it's amazing to me that we've, well, it's not really amazing because I can totally see how it's happened, but that we have kind of whitewashed mm -hmm. that whole we section have. of our history and and erased it. Mm -hmm. And I'm I like you said, as soon as I saw that project, I have a couple. Of, I, so I came from the journalism world. I have some friends yeah. who work at the New York Times. Mm -hmm. As soon as I saw they were doing that, I jumped on it. I was like, yes. And I agree with you. It's it's amazing oh, to it's see amazing. a paper of that stature take that project mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. And then of course, you know the the predictable backlash, right, for doing it. And that backlash, interestingly enough, has been pretty poor in terms of uh, sound reasoning. Now, I do a class on legalized racism at the University of Delaware. There are about 50 to 53 people that are regulars enrolled in the class. We have a lot of visitors, too, I notice, but primarily white. And their interest in that 1619 project has been amazing. They know every line, every everything, and they said, Dee Dee, why wasn't this so-and-so and so? So I think a lot of what we don't know, we don't realize that we don't know. And a lot of people uh, that look like me might say, oh, Vivi, they know this. No, they didn't, because it wasn't recorded, it wasn't taught. But my thing is, you talk about reparation. The only reparation that this African-American woman will settle for is to rewrite the text and correct it and make it complete. You can't pay me for what we have done in terms of growing and developing this country. And I'll say it. I know a lot of black people say, oh, they can make some compensation. You can't pay me for this. It's been too much. There is not one institution that we have not been a part of its growth and development, even in wars, that you were doing the same thing on this side of the Atlantic, but we went with you to the other side of the Atlantic, fought, died, broken bones, and everything else, and we have not missed one war with you regardless of treatment. You can't find better loyalty or greater loyalty than that, and I guess that's why I'm very proud to be African-American. I'll tell anybody. And to that, to that point, too, 
you look at okay, well, in, in history books, we'll start to, we'll start giving black people credit after the Civil War, right? We'll start yeah. we'll start noting this. But in what again gets glossed over is segregation. Oh yeah, right. You have another yeah. hundred years, give or take, of institutionalized yeah. racism, racism within our laws. Yes. Yes. And and so it, I think that really hits me when you would when you would hear people fight back against the 1619 project and oh this happened so long ago uh-uh. oh people need to move okay. on like it, literally there you grew up through the I, I would say what 30s 40s and 50s yeah so yeah. a good third third half I, I don't know 25 percent of your life yeah dealing directly with the impact oh, of this. Yeah. And that's one thing that, you know, when I would, I, I, so, you know, I grew up in, in Cecil County where you hear a, a lot more of that justification for stuff. And the things that would be like, there are people that you and I know that their grandparents, yeah, and to some extent their parents when they were younger, still dealt with this. Yeah. This is not ancient history. Well, when you think about it, I could take you back two years ago in terms of persons that were singled out and redlined, and redlining is supposed to be illegal, but you find another way. Quite honestly, uh, segregation and discrimination is something that has primarily, I would say 90% of segregation has been government institutionalized laws and policies. Hadn't been people, the people implemented the policies thinking this is the law, but if you tell me that I can't live in your neighborhood, it's not because there may be people that don't want me next door, but the law says they don't have to have me next door. And that's the sad part. That's why we did are doing legalized racism at the university so people can understand their laws and policies that have impacted and still have residual effects on so many areas, particularly in education. For sure. I think that one thing that gets lost in that conversation about what institutional racism is, people who have never had to encounter it don't believe that it's a thing. Well, how on earth would someone have a policy in government that's that's inherently racist? How would that even get passed? Like, it's actually pretty easy. It happens all the time. It's still Mm -hmm. there in a lot of places. Just I want to I'm going to back it up a little bit. So you grew up Jim Crow South. Yeah. Um, We had we had Councilman Hollins in here. Uh, It had a very similar story growing up in Palm Beach County in Florida. Same same. Uh, I think social issues shaped a mm-hmm. lot of his his desire to fight segregation and issues as he, mm-hmm. he moved on. When did you come to Delaware? How old were you? In 1960, right after college, I came here because we had a lot of relatives up here. My first cousins, I got tons of cousins, 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 come from a very large family. And my favorite cousin said, come on up, I need a little help. And she was having some problems. And I said, Okay. And she had two children, so I came up, and jobs were so plentiful. I got a job within two weeks as a social worker uh, working with the state. Stayed there for, oh my goodness, maybe 13 years until they asked me to go to Philadelphia to Region 3. And then Pete DuPont became governor, and he called me out of the clear blue sky and said, Bebe, we're going to start jobs for uh, Delaware graduates, jobs for America's graduates. Come on, you can just give me a year. Okay, a year lasted somewhere around 18, I guess, whatever. But we came and we started Jobs for Delaware Graduates, and that was so rewarding because it's still in the schools today. I loved it. I, I just absolutely loved it. So what, what did uh, Jobs for Delaware Graduates, how did that program work? How does well, it still work? that was for in the schools. We were to approach those youngsters who 
did not necessarily want to go to college. They could have gone, but they didn't want to go. They wanted to go into other careers and entrepreneurships and that kind of thing other than Votex, perhaps. And we got them ready with resume building, relationship building, how do you carry yourself, letting your talents, how, how do you show your talents without losing your character, that kind of thing. We worked with those youngsters and actually I watched kids just come out of shells and it was just absolutely amazing. And the conferences that we used to have once a year, those kids ran those conferences. And there might be kids coming from all over, but uh, in Delaware, our kids ran those conferences. It was just amazing. And then Pete asked me to go down to Washington because they were spreading from De Jobs for Delaware graduates to Jobs for America's graduates. So we had to go to like Tennessee and da 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 da. I hate flying and I had to do all of that. So that was that was just fun. I, I, I enjoyed it. And I, I don't regret the fact they did because the money was good that I was making in Washington and that was great at that time because I had one kid just out of college. Joan was getting ready to go into medical school. Julie was going into college. I said, holy dear, but you know, it all works out. And of course, all the girls were able to finish. And you know, Laurie went into the Navy CDC. She's a nurse and wound up being a captain. And Joan is right here. She is a uh, head and neck surgeon. Julie was hospitality management, which was different. I got good advice from the Votech, and they told me the school in Rhode Island, Johnson and Wales. And right now, quite honestly, and I know this is bragging, but Julie is the first African-American female in her position in a major city. I know there are some, I understand, in smaller cities. She is over Philadelphia's convention and tourism and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah. So you you, uh, you had three daughters. Yeah. Did you, is that it, three daughters? That's it. And all of them, I, guess, I don't know what role model they were. I guess, I guess they were looking at you because they've <laughs> done know. all these amazing things. <laughs> That's fantastic. Now, they all went their own way. You know, the two oldest were interested in health care. You know, because Laurie, as a teenager, was working with one of those nursing homes over there on um, Marsh Road or one of those roads, and she loved it. But she always wanted to be a nurse. She always wanted to be a nurse. And I did not know that Joan was going into medicine. I thought Joan might go into engineering, but she loves it. So you came up, you came up to Delaware. Yeah. You started working. You got you immediately into social work oh, and then yeah. working into, uh, I guess we would say, workforce development, right, with helping, right. helping people get out. Yeah. And then you've always kind of had, I guess, a focus on education, I guess, oh, as a result yeah. of that. That focus is not an accident. And this really sounds like you're bragging, and I guess I am. I'll, you can brag all you I, want. I, I, I'm 80. I'll be 84 when? The 16th of this month. Congratulations. Ha happy, happy early birthday. Oh, thank you. My grandfather finished. My grandfather graduated from Howard University. I have two diplomas at my house, 1896 and then one in 1898. Wow. Education has always been a thing with us, and it's not just to get you out, but education is the thing that helps to make a person whole. You understand who you are. You understand others. Uh, you have a sense of uh, positive literacy about you. My grandfather was one of the early African-American Episcopalian ministers. He got a doctorate of divinity, Howard, 
and his first degree, I'm not sure what that bachelor's was in, but I had that, 1896-1898. Then my grandmother taught school. She was, the school is now the University of the District of Columbia, but back in her day, it was something almost like a community college thing. I can't remember what they called it. And my mother graduated from Pitt University in 1926. She majored in French and English. I've always been taught that what goes into that brain, nobody can take it away. It really does help people to understand each other. And it was never education just for you to sit and brag and say, oh, I have a doctorate or have a master's or whatever. Do something with it but do something for somebody else. So my somebody else has always been my children and their education, particularly in light of the fact, and you may or may not know this, but there was a very small group of us that fought vehemently against busing because busing, schools weren't, deseg weren't segregated by law in Delaware, housing was. Mm -hmm. And we were trying to get the housing bill passed and that's what Senator Biden was working on. We were trying to get the housing bill passed, to sure. open up all that stuff. And our thing was that it wasn't about busing to desegregate or so-called desegregate education. Busing desegregated school buildings. Sure, sure, sure. It's a huge difference. I was gonna, I was gonna go this, but hey, we're yeah. here, so let's let's yeah. run up in it. Let's give a little, I guess, a little context around how busing kind of came about in Delaware. There was a, there was a court case in mm -hmm. Delaware, and as you mentioned, it wasn't that schools were segregated; it was that communities were segregated. Housing. Yeah, yeah, and so as a result, mm -hmm. schools then inherently became segregated mm -hmm. because people lived where they lived. And well, I, I, I am, I am horrible with court case names. It, I, I'll tell you, when I was in college. Mm -hmm. I had to take, you know, I, so I was a communications major, <laughs> and I, in doing journalism, we had to take communications law, and I was so, it was the last class I had to take before I graduated. I was so terrified I wouldn't pass it, because I, all the names of the cases would run together oh, in my yeah. head. Yeah. But I but I remember that this there was this case. I think it was the Belton case. Is that okay? Yeah. All right, I'm going to take your word for it. Yeah. We'll, fa we'll We will fact check mm -hmm. it later and make sure we get the Claymont. name right. But but anyway, but the but the substance of the case mm -hmm. uh, was okay. We're gonna fix we're gonna fix this issue. We're gonna divide Wilmington up into these pie chunks yeah. um, among the districts, and we're going to bus students. Uh, and, and as a result, what it closed all the high schools in the city, and all the high schools were now in the county. Mm -hmm. And so, if you wanted to go to high school, you were going to high school in what had traditionally been a white neighborhood mm -hmm. because of the housing segregation mm -hmm. laws. So so Joe Biden as a senator. Oh yeah who's arguing against busing as a solution to this. It wasn't about, you, you hate to say, oh, okay, it makes it look like he was against integration and all that. That's not true. He recognized, like we did, that schools by law were not segregated, housing was, and that if you were to just go full force and so-called therapy schools, which is what I called it, breaking up schools and closing schools and black kids being bused for nine years, white kids being bused for three, which was ridiculous, that this wouldn't do anything but break up our community, the housing laws would still be closed, et cetera, et cetera. And we were all for that. Now, a lot of people today, I've had people to say, oh yeah, baby, it's easy for you to say it now. No, we said it then. And I can always prove it because in federal court, 
our brief is there. They wrote that brief at my kitchen table. When you say our brief. Uh, we had a very small group, Jim Baker, Jack Miles, Pat Butler, just a few of us, about eight or nine of us, because African-Americans were thinking, oh, this will be great, and da-da-da-da-da. I do not know what gave us the instinct or the belief that, no, this wasn't the answer. But thank goodness we did have that belief that we knew better. Plus, our schools were good. There were things that we could have used, like at Harlan School, I can remember distinctly. Our parent group had worked for like two or three years to get this new playground equipment and all that stuff, and we hadn't gotten there yet. We were selling pies, the usual stuff. And uh, all of a sudden, in that August before schools were to be desegregated, so to speak, the whole new playground was put in the back of Harlan. And I said, no kidding. Mm -hmm. I thought we didn't have money for this. I've never forgotten that. But we couldn't convince this community at that time that we should oppose busing. Our remedy, you had to put a remedy in court, and our remedy was bust the teachers. If this is really about education, bust the teachers and let the children walk to school. Mm -hmm. We knew it wasn't going anyplace. But Judge Seitz actually granted us friend of the court status. Friend of the court status was uh, granted to our Committee to Improve Education and to the national, at that time they were called National Conference Council of Christians and Jews. It was Helen Foss's group. Nobody else got friend of the court status. About three to six months after the buses rolled, everybody was upset and sorry that it happened too late. You think it's a it's a bit of like populism kind of took over. I think we see that now yeah. still, right? Someone will say yeah. something and on the face it sounds like, oh yeah, yeah sure. But if you dig into it at all, That's right. no, and people don't don't want to do that, yeah. right? Right. And you just keep thinking that something is better than yours. Or with African Americans, there may be some of us that think, oh well, it's their turn to be inconvenienced. Whatever. I've always been taught by my mother. Think through things. Look beyond what people are saying. Develop a meaning for yourself. Mm. And it works. But you can't just jump up and say, oh, this is wrong, or oh, this is going to happen, or oh, white people should do it. No, no, no. It's not going to work that way. So you think that part of that was that people may have, if if they took more than five minutes to really think about it, would acknowledge, yeah, this this probably doesn't pan out in practicality, right? But there was that inherent, you know what, it's it's time for somebody else to have to think That's about right. it. Kind of like, That's right. It's, it's funny because I feel like the, that same kind of thing comes with like the healthcare debate now. Yeah. You know, when we talk yeah. about, and, and uh, you know, I'm like anyone following the, the Democratic primary, and I, my wife's Canadian, right? So I hear all the virtues of universal yeah, healthcare, universal right? Yeah, universal healthcare. It's great. Yeah. And, I, and I like Elizabeth Warren, but I think a lot like when I hear a lot of people defend the cost of Elizabeth Warren's plan, they're like, well, we have all this money to pay for all the stuff Republicans want to do. So wh- why do we have to think about where, how, why this costs mm-hmm. money? Mm-hmm. And but then you hear somebody like Joe Biden arguing the logic of it. Right. Yes. But we still at the end of the day have to pay a bill. You do so, have to pay a bill. Right. Yeah. So and it's not to argue like her plan is wrong or, no. or his plan right. is better or whatever. But. But it's just that same, you hear those same arguments of, I don't want to think about it because these guys haven't had to yeah. think about it. Yeah. Why do I have to be the one to think about it? And at the end of the day, that whether or not you should or shouldn't have to figure it out, 
it's still the practicality mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. I my only thing is, and I'm not that astute about the health care. My only thing is this: it's just like anything else. If we are, if there are persons, millions and millions of persons in our community that can pay insurance to help pay for their health care, they should. End of story in my book. If there are those who don't have two nickels to rub together, have to have health care, fine. Provide them with health care. If you can pay for it, yes. I just don't, I don't get it. I really don't. My thing is that I'm not looking for a free ride from anybody but I'm not looking for you to discriminate against what you're going to give to me and what you're going to give to somebody else. If I have an income of 300000 a year and have cancer, you have an income of 30000 a year and you have cancer, your treatment should be just as good as mine. Sure, for so. sure. Right. And, and no one should go bankrupt oh, because no. they get sick, right? No. Yeah, I I wish we could get to a point where we just we can agree on these basic principles, yeah, and then take care of them, yeah, right? Like I think everyone should agree. Oh, I was diagnosed with cancer. Not sure you can point to any one thing I did that that was a you know I have cancer because of that. It's not my fault. So why should I lose my house? Wow, over it, right? Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I just wish we could get as a country to a point where we acknowledge that. Yeah. But anyway, turning back to you, <laughs> turning back to your your fight. So. So busing, um, busing became a big issue. Was that was big that issue. kind of the first political issue that you dove into, or had you been working on some political stuff before that? I've kind of always been more community service, mm-hmm. and if there is something that we have been able to participate in, I know when I came here, I can remember being in protest, and I, I, I'm laughing because uh, you know how you go down to Odessa on Route 13? You ever done that? Okay. Not the highway, Route 13. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I remember there was, a, we were fighting for open housing. So our group, a bunch of us, I don't even remember, young adults, NAACP, something like that. And uh, Joe was in the Senate then in, in Dover. And he, come, he comes flying down 13, stops, because we we're picketing in front of, it's a feed store, Trivet. Trivet was against the housing and whatever else we wanted, whatever it was. So we were going to pick at his feed store right there uh, on 13 in Odessa. And so Joe stopped, and he grabbed somebody's side, and he walked around with us for about 15 minutes. And I remember having to go to the bathroom across the street for so bad. And I said, come on, go across the street, because this man might not let me go to the bathroom. I was pregnant. Mm -mm. And he did. Joe went, and the man didn't let me go to the bathroom. Never forgotten that Joe probably doesn't even remember, but it was hilarious. But I figured if he went with me, I might get to go. No yeah. one's, nobody's going to say no to Joe Biden. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. So yeah. And yeah. and you and Joe, I mean, it, that's not the, the right. That's not the first and last time that you guys have been together on on issues yeah. or, or anything. Mm-mm. So how has that relationship been for you over the years to watch his ascension in politics and and then how how have you yeah. guys worked together? I think uh, the most poignant time for me, because I really see Ashley more than anybody. Mm. I mean, Ashley's one of those people that we do chicken and waffles when she was here. But, you know, she'd come and eat. That child was so small, I swear, she's so <laughs> tiny. But the most poignant moment was we were all down at the train station. There was a special gathering when uh, President Obama was coming in and Joe. And I remember I, Margaret Henry was there, my daughter, uh, Tons, of, not tons, but lots of people. Yeah, I've seen, and, I've seen photos yeah, from it, yeah. And we were there. 
And I remember I got somebody from a paper from out of town. I don't know. They tell me. I never saw the picture. But it was in either the Post or something in Maryland or whatever, and they were saying I was from there or whatever. And I got tickled because I wasn't. But anyway, that's, that's, all those reporters were there. And I remember Joe coming down that ramp, and he came straight to me. And I hugged him, and we just cried because it was just unreal. Yeah. Yeah, unreal. And so I, I, when I worked at the Journal, I, I got to cover uh, Joe a bit that the in second term. That's the one thing I've always taken away from any time I've had an interaction with him the dozen or so times. He's very much what you see is what you get. That's right. You know, I, and it, I really have a, I struggle explaining that to people who yeah. don't get it. You know, I, I've worked in California and Wyoming and Indiana and Ohio and all these other states. And I think a lot of those people who live and have worked and covered mm -hmm. politics, they're very jaded to politics. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to explain to them, like, no, like, he, he's just a guy. He is. And, and mm -hmm. even being in it as long as he's been in it, like, mm -hmm. he's, he's just a, I mean, like, the Uncle Joe moniker, because he's just, <laughs> like, he, he might as well be, that might, might as well be who he is. Yeah. I saw him the day he announced. Um, like, I, I went to Trolley to grab lunch, and I walked, and he's just, he's just there getting pizza, right? And you see all the cameras yeah. are outside, and I'm like, I walked by, like, what are all these cameras doing uh -huh. down here uh -huh. and then i walked in and i'm like oh my goodness it's joe biden and you know he gets up and he's like hey how you doing yeah. hey what's going yeah. on you know and like here's a guy that i i probably haven't seen in two years and he's like i know you've been in my office and uh -huh. the, the, you, are you still with the journal and the, you know i mean just crazy to me the number of guys that there are a number of people this guy meets mm -hmm. and like he would remember anything about that's right but that's um so i can totally I, that that yeah. that moment what you see is what you get uh, because even remembering um, when his wife was killed uh, and his daughter and the boys were so sick, everybody thought that, you know, Joe was just going to say, well, you know, I'll see what I can do, da-da-da. Joe was that close to saying, y'all got this, and he was going to resign that position. And just like everything else, the count in the Senate makes a difference. And I remember Matthias and somebody else coming into Delaware because I'd never seen him before. Mm. Because Joe was right there with the boys. But that was when, I don't think people think about it, but that was when Joe started taking that Amtrak every day. Because sure. he was going to be here with Hunter and uh, Bo because they were they were in the hospital a long time. Then right. His right. mama came in town and helped out, and that was when things kind of lightened up just a bit for him. But he came home every day. Was it was it Bo that broke his leg, or was it one of them? I can't remember. Because there's the photo of him standing yeah. like next to the hospital bed, and somebody's leg is propped up. Now, I don't remember exactly who broke what, but I know both of those boys. That was not a joke injury. Oh, yeah. I mean, it well, was more than just broken bones. For sure. Those kids were injured. Yeah. Yeah, and for sure. They well, were there. Physically yeah. and I'm oh, sure yeah. emotionally, right? They oh, lost their please. mother, they lost oh, their sister. Yes. Yeah, yeah, for yes. sure. And he just uh I take my hat off to him because he he had to be the father for the boys and, and he did. He he stood tall. He stood tall. But that was a rough time. This whole state was in mourning with that family. Yeah. Well, I remember when, Regardless. when, when Bo uh, passed away, I covered, oh, please, yes. I, I covered the, the yeah. funeral and I mean, you would not, well, you would believe, uh, you would completely believe the number of people, yes. you know, standing on porches outside right. of the church and, yeah. and then the people, I mean, really the testament to Joe's yeah. legacy, the people yeah. that came, right? Yeah. You're just counting the dignitaries that are walking into yeah. the church as they came in. And that, that was another thing, like trying to explain to people 
why he wouldn't run in 2016. You know, I had so many people, well, he was, he was never going to stand up. You know, mm-hmm. he's never going to take on Hillary. It was, it was 100% that that man didn't know what he could what he could do at that mm-hmm. point mm-hmm. because of what had happened to mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. I mean, good Lord, your son dies, and then two months later oh, you're going to launch a presidential campaign? Yeah. There's no way. Yeah. God. Crazy. Anyway. We're, we keep diverging away from I you know. and talking about Joe Biden. Um, we're you know what we're gonna have to do. We're gonna have to get Joe and you in here. Oh, that's funny. And get the two of that's you. I'll just funny. let you you run yeah. the interview. You can have it. You can interview I still, Joe. I have a picture with him. I don't even know what we were doing. I think Bo was supposed to be speaking, and it was I think one of those King dinners or something. And the next thing I know, I saw Joe's picture with mine, and I had said uh, they were saying something about how I introduced. He was vice president then. And I just, I we did not expect Joe to do a whole bunch of talking. We should have known better than <laughs> I think Bo knew. And so I remember distinctly uh, when I had to enter, because I was the MC for that particular year. And I remember saying, okay, Bo is going to let his dad say something. So here's my buddy, Joe Biden. And they put that in the newspaper. That's so But funny. I, it was just funny. But that's just the way it is. You know, he didn't care. Neither did I. We laugh about that. Yeah. All right. So you call your buddy Joe Biden up, <laughs> and you and Joe. I'll let you interview Joe. You can have that. So, so we're gonna, we're, we're we're gonna roll on past uh-huh. past busing. So busing busing happened. Oh yeah. Nobody was too happy about it. Mm-hmm. I guess after it started happening. What right. what, what? So we still have this kind of different. I guess is the most judicial word I can use, school system here. Mm-hmm. But what kind of rolled out of that movement after it started after it started happening? A lot in terms of where we were, the fact that perhaps we didn't prepare ourselves so well for the classroom setting and that kind of thing. It, there's a lot that we can argue and say that DSEG didn't do, but then there are some things in a funny kind of way that it did do. It brought to light the stark reality of differences in education, Mm -hmm. in our system. And if nobody knew it before, you know it now. It was not a matter of saying that African-American children can't learn. It's, do you know how to teach all children? Do you know how children learn? Not a black brain, not a white brain, but are you in tune with how children learn, growth of brain, that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. And what we're finding in a very small group that we have called Read, with Dr. Grant and myself and a few other people, very small group, we are now pushing to elevate the profession of teaching. If you believe that your children like we always brag, oh, our children are our treasures and da-da-da-da-da. Well, if that's how you treat your treasure, I sure wouldn't want to know how you would treat me. And I don't say that in a mean way because we, this community, all of us, maybe nationwide, but I can only concentrate on Delaware, we're all responsible for the system of education that we have allowed to happen. And we know that the first part of our job must be without anybody stopping us, without giving in, without helping people or letting people say, oh, Vivi, we're going to put more money in. I don't give a darn how much money you put into any school system unless that product called teacher, who's pivotal to everything that happens in that classroom and to that child, 
unless we elevate that person, respect them and pay them as educational engineers, that's what we're calling them, mm -hmm. that's what we want to call them, then you might as well keep your mouth shut. So I just decided that uh, with this group uh, that we're working with, I have one last fight, and that's going to be this one. And I hope and pray that Delaware, as a first state, will find itself, find its way to stop playing games with children's learning and literacy opportunities in their mind. We have got to, one, elevate teaching. We've got to prepare people the best way that we possibly can to be that educational engineer, to be that force for learning and literacy in a child's life, hmm. regardless of what color that child is. doesn't make any difference. My, my sister is a first grade teacher at yeah. an elementary school in Baltimore. Oh, yes. And uh, everything you're saying rings 100% true. Yes. The, the frustrations that she has with yes. the support and, and to a certain extent with the enthusiasm yes. and effort from some people Come around on. her. Yeah. That's right. It's not just, hey, we have a teacher here. Nah. You have to have a teacher who's mm -hmm. committed yeah. to that mission mm -hmm. and who does really want mm -hmm. to look at it from that, that engineering That's perspective, right. right? That's right. She talks a lot, of, a lot about like the different kids that she has, yeah. the different backgrounds that they have, the different yeah. ways that they learn. Yeah. And a lot of that's shaped by what their home life is. That's right. And the advantages that they do or don't have. But uh, as stop, a result of that. we've got to stop using, which is what we've done. Mm -hmm. And she will tell you, we've got to stop using those kinds of circumstances as an excuse not to teach a for child. For sure, for sure, that's yeah. That's the thing. Because you can say to me, Oh, BB, poverty is. Poverty may give me a piece of toast and nothing else for breakfast. That's fine. But when a child who lives in those kinds of situations, and I'm not saying we don't need the trauma-informed support, et cetera, but I am saying that look at a child who is in an area that the neighborhood might have been shot up the night before. Their mother might not have come home, but they get up in the morning, find something for each other, put clothes on, and come to school. Mm -hmm. To me, that's resilience. Reward that resilience with learning opportunities to say, oh, I'm so glad you're here. This is what we're going to do today. Don't allow a child to wallow in their poverty or circumstances. No, no, no. For sure. And that, no. and that's a lot of what she talks about. Yes. It's like, how do we, so we have to acknowledge that these kids have these yes. different experiences that's outside. Right. That's right. And then we need to tailor to the individual that's to right. make sure that they all have the same advantage that's coming right. out of here. That's sure. why you need... So the, the collaboration has to be from higher education. Mm -hmm. We are saying that, you know, you, 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 you got to stop blaming everybody because we're all responsible for this one. But it's time now, and we know that it's time, way past time, for us to stand up to higher education and to the profession of teachers and saying, okay, you pay an engineer to build a bridge. He builds a bridge in two or three years. It's supposed to stand, and he's done with it. But you have a teacher, a person called a teacher, and that person has your child's brain for five days a week, seven hours a day, 12 years of their life, and you don't think that that person has to be the best? I have a problem with that. That bridge is built in two or three years. They're done. They're gone. You have this child for 12 years. Yeah, or 13 yeah. if we're lucky enough to have kindergarten. And we have to stop trying to act like well, Bibi, the parents don't do this, the parents don't do that. I'm not saying 
that there is not a parental responsibility. But even with me, with some degree of education, if you had asked me to help my child with calculus or geometry, I'd have been up the creek. So I'm not the teacher, but what I am is the person that will try and facilitate a way to help this child that may be suffering with that. Mm -hmm. But my job is to give you a child that is ready to learn, that is socially acceptable, and that's the thing that we can work on in a community. But that's my job, to send you a teachable child. But it's your job to teach that child. So your new mission, your new, your oh, new, yeah. your new fight is let's get the best teachers we can possibly get yeah. into these schools. So what would you say, because I think a lot of people acknowledge there's, there are issues with the Delaware education system. Yeah. But I don't know that I get a consensus on what those issues are. And well, I think that's yeah. maybe part of the reason everyone keeps saying there's issues because we can't even agree on what the issue is. That's right. And I think that uh, perhaps it must mean that we need to go back to the definition of school. What's the definition of school? It's supposed to be that facility, that haven for learning, both academically and otherwise. Stop making excuses for what it is that we can't do. So, but there has to be collaboration. The collaboration is between the higher educational system. You would really be ticked off when you think about it. Just suppose that you paid for four years of education, and you come out and they told you you were an education major, and you don't know how to teach that child. Mm. You don't know how that child's brain functions. You don't know how to relate to the parents. Nobody trained you to do any of this stuff. I'd be so mad about my four years of money. But what we're doing is, uh, Dr. Grantham and I, and a few other people, uh, but Dr. Grantham and I in particular in terms of the curriculum and that kind of stuff, working, actually working with the union, believe it or not, with the, uh, Devin and and we're saying stop blaming each other. Let's just try to resolve this. And the resolution has to be with higher ed, better prepare that teacher. And that fifth year that we'd like to see an educational engineer get, you are monitored, you are supported, you are helped, you are assessed in terms of, can you relate to the child? Do you know how the child learns? Do you know how to teach the child? All that kind of stuff, follow through. If you really believe what you're saying, that education is just the epitome of everything, then act like it. Mm. And our whole country is responsible, but I can only worry about Delaware. We, we don't act like education is that important. So, so if Joe Biden's president, you're not <laughs> accepting Secretary of Education. You're only <laughs> focusing on Delaware. That's what you're telling me. That's right. That's do you right. do you think he's going to call you for your opinion on a Secretary of Education? I don't know. I really don't know. But we'll have what we always, you know, it, it, when you have friends like that, you don't always wait for somebody to ask your opinion. <laughs> Joe will tell you that. Don't don't call me. me. Oh, it's funny. No, but I will. Uh, I'll share with him because I, I, don't, I don't try to get into that whole political milieu, but he knows that we will back him up on stuff that we know that he's right about and help him to process through stuff that we know is the right thing for him to do. Because, see, the one thing that people need to think about, there are not too many white European folks that would have worked as second-in-command under a black man. I think people need to look at that and understand. Joe worked so well in so many ways with President Obama, but you never saw him try to act like, well, 
I'm really running the presidency, mm. or I'm here because this black man doesn't know what he's doing. That wasn't him. And I think people forget that to me, that was the finest example of really caring about a nation and a community. I don't care what anybody says. Because if you've been taught all your life that you are the superior, and that man that looks like me is inferior, but yet you took second in command under him, take your hat off to him. Yeah, I've never never thought about it that way. And I and I think it's it's kind of funny I haven't thought about it that way because a lot of the reason you know, people talk about Joe being the VP pick is because you had a young, inexperienced politically black man and you needed to counter that with the opposite of that, right? So older white man who's been in politics forever, oh, Joe Biden, that's the, that checks all those boxes, right? That was a lot of the, the oh, well, that's why you picked Joe kind of talk at the time. But it's interesting mm-hmm. because if that were true, mm-hmm. you would think that the inherent reaction of that individual would be, well, yeah, he picked me because he doesn't know what he's doing. Uh-huh. Yeah, that and and, and you've, you've never n- heard it. Not once. Not one time. That is that is it, that is really interesting. Mm-mm. And they're friends to this day. Oh, for sure. I mean, people have no idea their friendship is real close. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the friendship bracelets, I think. Did you <laughs> went, did you see when the, they, 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 I think that should be the the big indicator. Uh, here we go. We're talking about Joe again. All right. So I guess let's bring it back to to, okay. to Delaware education. Yeah, there's been a lot of attempts to address education in Wilmington and how do we how do we fix the schools? Mm-hmm. What do you think we need to do? I mean, we've talked about we got to make we got to make sure teachers and knowing how to teach uh-huh. is a priority. But mm-hmm. are there other things? Are there more institutional things that we need to fix? Is there still an institutional problem? You don't solve a problem until you recognize that you have one, mm. and you don't solve a problem with a lot of cute time limited programs like. Oh, what was that? No Child Left Behind. Mm. E-learning and all that. No. For once, I would like to see us. I I know you could say, we're going to have to go on, sort of like we're going now, but in the meantime, it'll be on a parallel. We're going to better train teachers. With the union, we've talked about it. Those persons who, it should be almost mandatory that we will upgrade the professional level of teachers that are on the job. If you want your job, this is what you're going to do to keep it. And we would have courses that are already, we have a curriculum already developed. Gloria's, that's her expertise. And we would get them ready, do deliberate things, no cute programs, and immediately work with the schools to say, okay, there's a certification uh, that would be additional for teachers that would take about a year. And it would include how children learn, how you relate to children, how brains function, how learning occurs, et cetera, et cetera, things that they are not being taught. I don't believe that you can dance around it. It's not about a lot of things moving to school and structurally this, that, and the other. Work on what really matters. And what really matters is the teacher and recognizing the teacher as the pivotal force in learning in that classroom. I told Gloria, we're not going to allow a lot of other things. Oh, if we do this resource or put this in here and do this. No, get the teachers ready and look at that accountability in terms of these assessments that we're doing. We give all these standardized tests. There ain't no standardized children. You got to teach. You got to test on what you've taught. We can redo our testing system, but see, people don't realize it. I know I'm crazy. But testing is big business now. Oh, sure. So we got to be careful with that. 
But by the same token, you got to keep the focus on the child. What's the most important thing? That child that's in front of you. So I'm thinking that if we, the first thing we have to do is recognition of the problem that we're having. And the second would be the recognition as the teacher as the pivotal force in any learning institution and to get them ready. You don't have to fire anybody if they want to stay, but it's mandatory that you get better prepared. Mm -hmm. And then higher ed can put in place what that fifth year will be. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how it works here. I know in Maryland because she's having to to deal with it. You know, she has so much time before she has to get her master's degree. Yeah. And I don't know if we have kind of a similar thing here, but I I think that while it's important that there's a focus on like lifelong learning yeah. as an educator, it's important to make sure that that continuation of learning is also tailored towards the mechanisms yeah. by which you do your job. Yeah. Right. So it's one thing to be. Uh, you know, a high school uh, literature or, or English teacher and then do a master's in literature. Yeah. That's fine. But let's make sure that as a component of your continuing education, mm -hmm. it's also geared towards making sure you get that information in the brains. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's an interesting way Ooh. to look at it for sure. But also, I, this is a wish list and it doesn't have to be, but I just think it would be so wonderful if anybody had ever asked me, I wish we would incorporate arts in education. There's so much math and music. Mm -hmm. There is so much literature in history and art. And we just act, we do things, we compartmentalize learning. Your life isn't compartmentalized. If you go to a grocery store, you've got to be able to read the labels. You've got to be able to know how much it costs. You've got to be able to physically push the cart. You got to be able to count to know how much your groceries are and what you give her and what change you're going to get. And then you got to know health wise what foods are good for your family. Learning and living is integrated. So why don't we compartmentalize? Music is over here. You can't, oh, baby, you can't have that. Yes, you can. Now, we had an opportunity here years ago uh, from the Lincoln Center. I remember they came in town. And a bunch of us uh, that were, quote, active, uh, they uh, asked us, the education department people said, okay, they want to talk to you all about this program at Lincoln Center, Integrated Learning, et cetera, et cetera. I was so excited. And long story short, uh, they said the teachers didn't want it and something else and something else. I was so disappointed. Then I had to go to Washington to do that Jobs for America's graduates program. And when I came back on a visit, I was over at the art museum for something. And there was this lady from Ferris School. At that time, the woman was a principal. And I overheard her conversation with somebody else. And she was talking about the Lincoln Center project. And they were using that as a basis of curriculum. Mm. I said, Miss, I know I'm listening on your conversation. And I explained to her just what I did to you. She said, oh, yeah been doing a thing it's working very well etc cetera, etc cetera. and then they took that out of Ferris school program where she was <laughs> and said it cost too much mm. but they those kids had the advantage of Lincoln Center program for two years integrated learning and if there's any any school that needs Please. the added help right yes. Ferris yes. for sure yeah I mean, you're talking about your most underserved yeah. uh, student population there. That's um, And she left. Mm. She did. And I'm pretty sure it was because of that. I'm pretty sure. Well, I and, and I mean, can you blame her, right? Yeah, if you're, if I, yeah I wasn't here when she started, but 
she left. Mm. Yeah. That's unfortunate. Yeah, it is. Mm. It is. So I guess uh, my, my kind of next, and I don't know, it might be last because we've been talking for almost an hour, uh, question would mm-hmm. be, you know, to me, your legacy is very much as an, as an education advocate, but what do mm-hmm. you see your legacy as, or what do you want it, what do you want it to be here in Delaware? I, I really just prefer, I, I, and you're right, I, I believe in education. I am going to be an advocate and will continue to be an advocate, but I believe in service to others. I'm not a martyr. I, I, I'm not trying to act like I'm just some goody-goody. But I kind of believe that everybody has a purpose, and my purpose is to serve other people, and I enjoy it. I thoroughly enjoy it. And it's not to say, oh, look what I did, What? because I'm going to tell you the truth. And my kids will tell you, and a lot of people will tell you, somebody can come up to me and say, oh, baby, such and such. I don't even know what they're talking about. (laughs) My thing is, it's like I tell Tony all the time, do what you're supposed to do for other people and then get amnesia. That's a good way to look at it, right? Yeah. You don't want to rest on, on. look at me and all the stuff I've done. Please. Yeah. But just get amnesia. And if you do that, it just means that God has given you the ability to do something for somebody else, but he doesn't want you to hang on to it for the rest of your life. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Then you really didn't do it for somebody else. You did it for your little patches and, you know, what stripes. Oh, I did this today. Give me a break. No, no. It's got to be about somebody else. <laughs> it's got to be, right? Because if, you, if you're doing something for somebody else, it can't yeah, be about you. That's right. And then... You find yourself not as worried about stuff. You don't think of It's amazing the things you don't think about and worry about when your mind is on somebody else. I'm serious, dead serious. When you're concentrating on somebody, you don't have time to think about all that stuff. Your knee doesn't hurt as badly. Your shoulder doesn't hurt as badly. You don't feel as old and arthritic, you know. So, yeah, why not? So you're telling me if you didn't have uh, education advocacy, you might you might have some joint pain. Is that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. 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 Well, uh, BB, is there anything else you want to you want to add? Any more any hot takes you want to throw in before we before we sign off? Well, not really. I just um, I, I I can never do anything with anybody until I really just say thank you to my girls. I have the best daughters in the world. They're kind and considerate. And it's not because all of them are doing all these special kinds of things occupation-wise. They're good people. They're kind. And uh, they help others. And they don't talk about it. I can be in the street and somebody will say, Phoebe, uh, boy, Julie, really, da-da-da. I said, really? And I love it. I just love it. But uh, I'm, I'm really proud of them. I'm really proud of them. They're they're. They're good people. Yeah. They're taking that message from you that if you're doing something uh-huh. for other people, it's got to be about other people. Well, they've taught me a lot, I'll tell you. They've taught me a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah. I love them to death. Laura, Joan, and Julie. <laughs> and I always say the three names because if we're in a room, they say, Mom, who do you want? I say, well, whoever comes first. <laughs> <laughs> Well, B.B., thank you so much for coming in and joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I appreciate being here. It was fun. Awesome. 
Sam. Hello. We got good news. We got bad news for our listeners at home. I'm, uh, I've taken another job. Sam is leaving us. He went from inter- intern <laughs> Sam to part-timer Sam to he's out the door Sam. Yeah, my time here has been very special. I've learned a lot as a videographer, grown a lot, and, uh, you know, I never imagined I'd be doing podcasting and stuff, so thank you to Kyle for all your help in everything and every aspect of my career moving forward. You're welcome. You can um, pick up the check for that statement on your way out the door. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Sam is going to the state, so you will still get to see (laughs) some great content that Sam makes. He is going to be working. Went from one county to three. (laughs) <laughs> We're from one county to three. He's moving up. Uh, Sam will be working with, with Daniel Sato at the state and working in their multimedia department. Daniel and I used to work together at the Journal, so very happy to see that Sam will still be in good hands. And we're going to miss him here, so that's no fun, but we still got him today to help us with our fact check. Boom. Talk about the facts or maybe some things that people aren't familiar with that uh, we discussed with BB on the podcast. So, Sam, what have you got? Well, she, you know, discussed busing. I wanted to kind of discuss redlining. Redlining, right. I think a lot of, uh, at least I wasn't that familiar with this um, as a, you know, younger person <laughs> who uh, didn't, wasn't into politics and, and studying history a lot, so. And fortunate enough to not grow up in an era yes. when this happened. Yes, very privileged in that matter. But, um, so redlining pretty much came in, this was around about 50 years after the Civil War ended. Mm-hmm. Um, and the FHA, which is the Federal Housing Administration, mm-hmm. kind of there was there was a federal implementation of racially charged like zoning, and they it's called redlining because there were there were four stages. And they they kind of broke it up into colors, and different districts of different cities and urban areas got broken up, and it wasn't even like proper zoning. It, they they were like handpicked. So green meant that. There was green, blue, yellow, and red. Green areas were up-and-coming neighborhoods. Uh, were you know these were pre- predominantly white on the outskirts of urban areas, suburbs mainly. Blue were uh, hadn't reached their peak yet, but were on the up and up. And then uh, yellow were declining. Uh, these were more of a mix of white and black people. You know, based on kind of the the times, that it seemed like that these were on the decline and were probably going to get pushed out at some point. But then the red areas were neighborhoods where um, basically were predominantly black, very old housing, uh, and were kind of red flags for mortgage mortgage companies. So they would tell people that were living there that, hey, uh, this place is totally run down, and we're gonna demolish it and you got to move. So they were pricing people out of their own neighborhoods, even though these people had not enough money to go anywhere else. So Jim Crow policy, uh, and and I think a lot of times when we talk about Jim Crow laws, we think of the uh, obvious ones, right? Poll taxes and uh, segregation, you know, uh, whites only water fountains and bathrooms and, you know, lunch counters that you can't sit at or bus it, right? You can't sit in this part of the bus kind of stuff. But there were these systematic policies put in place around housing where you would get preferential treatment based on based on your race. This was a this was an official government policy. Yeah, and that that's kind of the the kind of most eye-opening and scariest part was that this was a government thing that they were 
intentionally doing this to, you know, quote unquote, clean up these areas. But, you know, that didn't mean clean it up for the better for everybody. It meant clean it up for the white people. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to actually, because she, she had got into uh, actually uh, talking about teachers mm. and making sure that they're trained and they're well equipped to handle and give the kids the best opportunities that they can. Because I, I really liked what she said about, um, you know, this, you're, you're giving your child to this person for their first, you know, six to seven years in education for seven to eight hours a day for five days a week. Like, we need to make sure that that person is very qualified and very equipped to give them the best opportunities for advancement. I know your sister, right, is the is the teacher, and I kind of wanted to get maybe you expand a little bit of thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, she, so she uh, is a teacher. She, she even mentioned something about, like, a fifth year being, like, a part of schooling that mm-hmm. where it's, a, it's very hands-on and it's more in the classroom so that, People, trusted people are able to evaluate these teachers before they actually let them out into the world. Yeah, so she's a teacher in Baltimore, uh, in Baltimore City, uh, in a very, I mean, she, the challenges that she has are very tied to the same challenges that a lot of teachers probably in, in Wilmington schools have. She went to, well, she went to school for, for one thing and then decided early childhood education was more what she wanted to do and she changed into that. But she went into this program specifically because this program was renowned for like really training, not just here are the things you need to teach kids, but here are here is how kids learn. Here's how kids absorb this information. And here's the best way to work with that kid to make that kid want to learn and be mm-hmm. a lifelong learner and that kind of thing. It's not just about memorizing facts and numbers and who's and what's. Learning how that kid's brain functions at that age when they're young and then teaching in a way that gives that kid the best chance to not just absorb facts, but but to build tools to problem solve. and figure Yeah, and that, that's kind of like the new thing, right, is, is a lot of like individual-based learning. And, right. you know, I remember, you know, when we were growing up, it was, you know, standardized testing and everyone did the same thing. And, you know, if you were a little bit different, you kind of either got ignored or sent to the principal's <laughs> office mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So I, I think that BB was very adamant about making sure that each kid is is really focused on and gets the attention that they need. Yeah, for sure. And that's uh, something else she kind of talked about, you know, standardized testing. Like, testing itself has become a major industry in this country. Um, Scantron. (laughs) And it's not like, you know, uh, we we shouldn't be testing at all, right? We need to know that kids know certain basic things to function in the world. But, um, you know, her point being... It's not so much about the specific facts that you know as much as do you know how to function and do you know how to learn. I thought BB really had some some really salient points around some of that, and I hope I hope she's uh, successful in her newest initiative because that's big stuff. Sam, I'll, I'll let you close it out. Well, thank you for being a great mentor for me through my time here, and uh, you know if. Uh, if you want to come intern at the uh, county, come on down. It's a great place. <laughs> I want my final words on this podcast to be pay the teachers. Pay the teachers. He said it. All right. Thanks, guys.